0: I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today I'm here alongside my dear colleague and co-hostess, Maureen Ferguson. We have a great show for you today. Senator Mike Lee, who represents the great state of Utah, is out with a new book. It's called Saving Nine, the fight against the left's audacious plan to pack the Supreme Court." and destroy American liberty. As an attorney and constitutional expert, he has some great insights into why so many are calling to pack the court, why Biden has changed his mind after being against it for so long, and what the future of the judicial branch looks like in a post-Roe era where we have already seen so many attacks on our justices. He has all that and more. But first, we're happy to have EWTN News correspondent, Colm Flynn, with us to discuss Cardinal Parolin's trip to Africa in lieu of Pope Francis, who is still suffering from knee pain. And he gives us a very moving and extremely important story out of South Sudan, where so many are suffering as they find themselves on the verge of a terrible famine. Welcome to the show, Colm.
1: Gracie, it is a pleasure to be on the program with you. How are you doing today?
0: Very well. It's uh, wonderful to catch you. You are in Estonia, a very tiny country in Europe that I've never visited. What brings you to Estonia?
1: It's beautiful. As I look to my right, I'm looking out the window at the old town of Tallinn, the capital of Mm -hmm. Estonia. And as you mentioned, teeny tiny country, only a million inhabitants here, right on the Baltic Sea beside Latvia, Lithuania, just below Finland if you go across uh, the Baltic Sea, 40 minutes you get to Helsinki and I am here hosting a conference about environmental issues that I do every year for the past number of years and it's a big thing that's connected with the UN and other organisations so it's a really cool event because people come from all over the world and uh, they talk about how they can clean up their towns and villages and countries and get governments involved and I just try and keep the thing going, the conference. They were really stuck, Gracie, they needed someone badly and no was available and uh, so they asked me so, <laughs> so
0: environmental in the sense of uh, the sort of hands to the task right like the on the ground like what how, bettering your your actual environment not environmental in the big picture
1: absolutely 100 so it is they run the world cleanup day which is this really cool day every september Uh, each year and they encourage everyone to go out, whether it's a school to go clean up your playground, pick up the litter, or if you live beside a forest and people dump refrigerators or washing machines in a part of the forest as people do in many parts of the world, to go as a community and try and clean that up or to lobby your local government or municipality to do that. And uh, then some people in Indonesia, it's hugely popular and they mobilize over a million people every year to go out in the streets. And many companies now give their employees a day off to go and pick up the rubbish and try and um, take garbage out of the, the lakes and the the rivers and stuff. So it's really cool. It's that a cool is movement. really cool.
0: I wonder yeah. if you have a big um, contingent from San Francisco, for instance. I was in California recently yeah. and I thought some of our big cities, like San Francisco, could really use some direct cleaning, maybe with brushes and, and, uh, and, and Clorox.
1: <laughs> you know what, there's right, there are two people. I don't know if they're from San Francisco, Gracie, but they're from California. There's Bill and Steve, and they're the representatives for the United States. They work in the national parks. And oh, so, yeah. you know, they want to make sure that we've got a clean future and clean parks that people can walk through without cigarette butts. That's the biggest problem now, Gracie. Everywhere you go in Italy, where I live in Rome, it's cigarette butts. Really? And it's interesting. People who would never normally litter, who would say, I wouldn't litter, these, the same people will think nothing of flicking a cigarette out of a window or throwing it on the ground. Because it's so small, they don't see it as littering. But that cigarette butt is filled with plastics. And those plastics, sure. of course, take thousands and tens of thousands of years to disintegrate.
0: And what about vaping that's not taking hold in Italy?
1: Vaping, I don't smoke myself, Um, never too late to start. I know what you say, but... uh, (laughs) You could be cooler. uh, If
0: you smoked, you'd be cooler.
1: (laughs) Well, I need all the help I can get to be cooler. Uh, it's a good thing that people can't see me at home because this is the beauty, of, beautiful theater of the mind radio. But you can see Gracie as we're talking over Zoom that I need any help I can get to look cooler. So maybe if I was holding vaping, if I was vaping, vaping I might be cooler. I was oh, just right. no, in. See. I was just
0: in Spain and I saw that many people were, mostly people were smoking. Some were vaping, and I was asking my son who vapes, and I said, "Well, why why aren't people vaping instead of smoking? Which would help you with, you know, would help with littering and also with." Lung cancer. And he said that they keep the nicotine content in the vapes very low in Spain. And it's so it doesn't attract the smokers. I wonder if that's the same in Italy. I guess that's a conversation for another time, but it's an interesting... Yeah. <laughs> so Colm, you, you just came back from South Sudan. Um, South Sudan is, is, is a terrible, terribly, uh, a, a terrible place in the sense that people are suffering tremendous challenges, just living, just surviving. And, and these challenges are slated to get worse from different climate horrors like droughts and floods, from political instability and violence, political violence and in internally displaced people. They're really looking at famine in, a, in, in, in real, the real thing, famine, people dying of hunger. By the, by the hundreds of thousands. That's the reason that Pope Francis wanted to go visit and see if he could shine a light on that and, and bring peace, some peace to the country and stability. And he wasn't able to go, but the Cardinal Parolin was able to go and you were there just before the Cardinal. So we wanted to hear your thoughts about South Sudan and also the Cardinal's visit and what you think the Vatican's uh, beautiful interest in this area could bring.
1: Yeah, and uh, by the way, Gracie, thank you so much for having me on the program as well. And it was a journey that we were looking for forward to so much going with the Holy Father to the Democratic Republic of Congo, where he was going to go first and then move across to South Sudan to Juba, the capital. And, you know, we were surprised as well and disappointed that the Pope Francis wasn't able to make the trip. But of course, we completely understand the valid medical reasons why he couldn't. And we went still to South Sudan. We cancelled our trip to Congo, um, but we had some... Um, Incredibly powerful story set up for EWTN, in particular for EWTN News in Depth. So, we were going to film a number of stories there that are uh, being supported by the Sudan Relief Fund, run and operated by Neil Corkery at the head of it. And so, when I heard about these stories and the people who were involved in them and the incredible work they were doing in the name of their faith and the work the Catholic Church was doing there on the ground, I spoke to my bosses in Rome and we decided we would still go ahead with the trip um, as planned, despite the fact that. Francis wasn't going, and then Cardinal Pietro Parolin was going in his place. And everything you mentioned, Gracie, I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, Such a beautiful country in terms of its savannas and its nature. Um, there in Africa, and the beauty of the people that we met, and you know, you hear this all the time. It's a cliche, but it's absolutely true. Sometimes the people with the least have the most in mm-hmm. their heart and in their yeah. soul, and they're the most they generous, the
0: most. also, right?
1: They give the most. Mm-hmm. The people who have the, the the least. So the people we encountered there were just stunningly beautiful in spirit and uh, in how they interacted with us. But the country itself, in terms of the mechanics of the country, the political system, uh, they mean the corruption that you mentioned. Now, I don't know if we should be talking about this or not, but even getting through the airport when we landed in Juba, the capital, having coming through Ethiopia, the minute we got in line, less than five minutes off the plane to get our uh, vaccines, COVID vaccines checked. Of course, somebody came over from the government official from the Ministry of Health and offered to help us with our forms, fill them out. And then put out his fingers, rubbing his fingers together, saying, a little gift for me. Mm -hmm. So we said, no, 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 no. And we were in the queue and we went through that stage. And then we went to get our visas checked. Now, we had the proper visas. We got them at the embassy, the South Sudanese embassy in Rome. And of course, there was a problem didn't have all the documentation they said which we did <laughs> and so I was taken in they could see that I was the rep- not the, the person who was in, kind of leading the crew so they brought me into a back room and they were flicking through my passport for ages and they were looking for money and then eventually um, we had to give $100 to get through and get our passports back and remember we have all the expensive camera equipment with us so I think they saw that and then we got our bags from the carousel and we were walking out the airport and someone said stop no these bags need to be checked and certified before you bring them out into into south sudan so in another room and you can guess they wouldn't let us take the bags unless they got a gift for tea it's what they called it you had to pay for everything um, as a foreigner there, especially a foreigner with the TV crew, uh, getting through certain places, trying to progress in places. Well, them how we call-
0: how do you expect them to feed their families? Do you think that their that their salaries cover that? I would I would imagine not.
1: Well, the, yeah, you of course the average salary there. The police officers, we had three three police officers with these with us each day, and we had to pay them. I think it was around fifty dollars a day. We paid them in hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were there doing it unofficially for us. They weren't doing it as part of official police work. And one of them told me that his Salary, mm-hmm. sorry four dollars a month a month dollars a, a month now of course when you put it in that way when you look at that perspective it's not such a bad thing when you're handing out money here there and everywhere else but it shouldn't be like that because it is a minerally rich resource oh, rich country oh, totally totally and it should be the government that is paying these guys mm-hmm. But as well, it was for our safety, too, because you have stories of kidnappings in South Sudan. Uh, you have you do hear horrific stories, even though they do live in peace at the moment. And the signs of that war and the violence, they loom everywhere when you're driving around. You see people with machine guns, you see security guards and military. It's a heavily militarized country. But again, I I don't want to focus on that. That's just kind of a way to show you what it was like for us entering the country. And then you had the sweltering heat and the little scorpions on the ground in the place we were staying and the hyenas. You would hear the hyenas howl at night. But again, the people that we met and the church, the Holy Ghost Fathers, the Lady Nolene Loughran from Ireland, who's working with the people in the worst conditions, that was inspiring.
0: It's wonderful how where, where misery is greatest, you also have the greatest holiness, right? That like holiness rises up to meet where, where human misery is so, so strong. So you're able to see both of those things, the, the, the terrible human misery and the holiness of people that put themselves in, in danger and in and that terrible discomfort of, 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 of being in that place when they could be somewhere comfortable, right?
1: Yeah, and it's it's the, the tapestry of life, that contrast, you know, why do people suffer? Why is there pain? Why is there darkness? You focus on that, you could, or you could focus on the light. And even though you see such pain and misery and suffering there of the people, again, the light that shines from them and the people who are going there, as you said, who could be back home in the comfort of Europe or in Ireland, as the case of Nolene. Um, but no, they've devoted, 10 15 some of some of them 20 years to being there with the people looking for what in return not money not fame or fortune there You know, us with the TV cameras, this is a rarity, us coming in. And so that is, that's just an amazing thing to see. And to see the church, the church there where people are at their lowest helping, our Catholic organizations like the Sedan Relief Fund, um, that is incredible to see the church at its best, being there for people. People with leprosy, one of the places, we filmed in a number of places, an orphanage in Juba, the capital that looks after street children. We also filmed in a school run by Loretto Sisters, and they are educating young women the school a secondary school just for a high school just for young women because in south sudan at the moment women after they go through puberty really their role is to be sold off for cows as a wife and that's how the family grows its wealth because in south sudan i think they told us around one percent or just less than one percent of people have bank accounts and really their currency is cows Mm -hmm. they're cows Mm -hmm. so the the way a family obtains more cows is by uh, having daughters to who off or swap for cows for marriage. So the idea of investing in a daughter in the family to go to high school and then possibly university is relatively unheard of because they're not going to make money in the short term. So these Loretto sisters are telling the people, the local people, look, it will be a long-term investment. Let your daughter get an education just like your son. Let her go on to third level. Maybe she'll get a job in the capital and then she can support the family that way. So that was incredible to see that school run by the Loretto sisters, but probably the most impactful and impactful and just a unbelievable place that we visited. Unbelievable in the sense that I had never heard of colonies for people with leprosy. The last time I'd heard of leprosy was when you read it in the Bible, and Jesus with the lepers. So to hear that there was this place outside of a town called Rumbek, where there are around four and a half thousand people with leprosy today living, and they're living there because they've been shunned by the government and by the towns and by the villages. And to see this woman, Nolene Loughran, who was bringing them medication, food, her and the other people who work with her supported by Sudan Relief Fund, and, and the houses that are been built. Before that, they would just live in these small little huts made out of wood and Nolene did this incredible interview with us for EWTN on camera and you know I just want to some of this is a bit graphic but this is the reality of the situation that the people who had leprosy before they got their medication because with medication I believe you can live a somewhat normal life and it's not as contagious and you can keep it in control your leprosy it's actually before they have medication
0: that. Uh, cures leprosy we it's completely curable with a year or two of uh, of the correct antibiotic you can't get back the fingers that you lost and and other and the neur- Nerve damage is, is permanent, but it's curable. And that's something that from a medical perspective, it, it breaks my heart more because I know that leprosy ought to be something in the past, completely in the past. And, and it's not. And and it is very contagious. So it's, I'm not surprised that they're shunned because that makes complete sense if you don't have the medicine. So this woman and, goes there and, and she's taking care of these 4,000 people and she she's able to medicate them. She's able to With
1: the help of others, yeah, and it's it's, you're so right what you say in that you don't expect to see it today because when we were filming, we we saw the people with their fingers missing, and these Mm -hmm. were mainly the older people when they weren't getting the medication when the Ah, government was paying for the medication. So a lot of the elders in the village and the elders they would come up and you would shake their hand and you'd realise there was one finger missing, two, three, four. Some mm-hmm. some of them had no fingers at all, just a stump out of a hand and the same on their feet. So when they would get the leprosy, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, on their fingers or whatever to stop it spreading, they would just remove the fingers. They would have to take them off.
0: Well, they, they rot off. The fingers fall off because uh, leprosy attacks the nerves and then it's something like, like advanced diabetes in that sense. It, yeah. it destroys the joints and the, and all, all the bones erode and then you lose. It's a terrible, terrible disease. Damn. I've worked in a leprosy clinic actually in Indeed, miami okay. because in miami. uh yes and miami has a leprosy clinic because we uh, there are several in the united states because people come amazing. in and out of the country from countries like south sudan who have that have leprosy that's endemic so we have clinics here in the united states but immediately the people are placed on the correct antibiotic and whatever damage has been done can be reversed but the damage doesn't continue so no one should die of of uh-huh. leprosy uh, in this day and age or have to be isolated in a compound. That's terrible that, that that's happening in South Sudan. Wait, so the Sudan, the Sudan Relief Fund is the one that's engaged uh, helping the lepers?
1: Yes. So Nolene is there on the ground doing the work. Nolene Lockwerin is her name from Ireland. And then of course, you can do nothing without money. Let's mm-hmm. be realistic. Yep. So she, I don't know how they um, they met up, but she got in touch or they got in touch with her, the Sedan Relief Fund. And basically she tells them what they need and they fund it. And they fund this incredible life-saving work. There was one young boy that we met and you could see the leprosy on his face. Mm-hmm. You could see the skin had rotted around his nose and around his che- lips and cheeks. Thankfully, he taking medication now and as you said you know you have to take it for a year or two years but some of them would get payment in the past they would get enough money for medication for a few months and then the money would run out and they would have a break of six months or a year and have to start over over again but at the moment they're receiving their medication on a regular basis and but just to see that and to hear the stories when I asked Nolene, what happened before you and the Sudan Relief Fund came here to do this work? She said the people were here on their own with no medication. So they would get worse and worse. They would get weaker. The leprosy would get worse. And she said, basically, and it, it sounds horrific, but again, it's the reality. The hyenas would come during mm-hmm. the night and they weren't, they were in these little wooden huts and they would take who they could take. And um, thank God. That is changing now. Still, conditions are really bad there. They don't have electricity. They don't have running water. They have some pumps, but uh, it's a lot better than it was.
0: What other What other uh, things does the Sudan really fund uh, fund uh, in, in South
1: Sudan. Well, that was the main thing that we filmed them funding, which was the medication for the people, the food, also housing, making these small kind of concrete houses for them to help protect, as well, as you mentioned, the the extreme weather conditions. They had flooding in the past 12 months, extreme flooding. And before that, they had extreme drought, which decimated their crops. Organizations like the World Food Programme are by the United Nations. But now the World Food Programme have announced that they're really scaling back their relief work in South Sudan because of the rising food prices as a result result of the war in Ukraine
0: yes I read that this is exactly the wrong time when when you're facing mass starvation
1: and we saw them everywhere their planes were at every airport the world food program their trucks were on the road but it's uh, they've made this announcement that's kind of shocked people that we can't afford to get the food to the people anymore so we have to like majorly scale back in South Sudan at a time when they're facing a famine so there will be starvation so this just shows you how important the work is of organizations like Sudan Relief Fund and the Church on the ground but I know they're involved they built some churches as well near the colony in Rumbek, and uh, there are schools there I'm not sure if they're involved in the schools yet but I know that there was a representative from the relief fund there and he was talking to the Holy Ghost Fathers who uh, have just built a new school and are looking to expand it so I think they're talking to them about possible support there as well.
0: Now, now going back to the Vatican, what did uh, the Vatican hope to accomplish with uh, originally the Pope's trip, but then Cardinal Parolin? How can, how can the Vatican help the situation in South Sudan?
1: That's a good question. And the Vatican, of course, is what represents all those missionaries that are across South Sudan, uh, working under the umbrella of the Catholic Church, uh, like the Loreto Sisters we met or the Holy Ghost Fathers. Um, And I think the Pope wanted to go to do what he does really well, show his closeness to people like he did when he went to Iraq. And I think he was going there to show his closeness to the people that they're finding their feet. South Sudan is a new country. Mm -hmm. It's the newest country in Africa. It's one of the newest countries in the world. And really, they're trying to find their voice and their identity as a nation. And as a people and they have been through much suffering be it war be it starvation in the past be it the drought the and uh, you know they're looking to the future but it's difficult when the the odds are still stacked against you they're they're kind of wading through thick water trying to make it the hope that we saw were the young people the young people were really beautiful the ones we saw in the school and i think pope francis was going just to, to show his closeness to the people and the closeness of the catholic church to the people there that we are with you in the good times and the bad times and uh, you can always rely and count on us and then paroline cardinal paroline going i think th- there was disappointment and there was some confusion in the bishops that we spoke to why the pope cancelled the trip to the congo and to south Sudan, but then is still going ahead with the trip to canada straight afterwards oh, let's say
0: that i didn't so, know
1: yeah they were you know, maybe he'll still
0: have to cancel possibly if his health doesn't
1: improve? Well, it's coming up fast on us and uh, possibly there's always the possibility, but I think the Vatican have announced uh, the detailed itinerary and they had uh, they had announced the uh, plans for South Sudan and Congo too. So we thought, okay, it's going ahead. That's why we've pushed ahead with our plans. And, um, you know, there's different, the Vatican, of course, is, is sometimes it's difficult to get information out mm-hmm. of the Vatican press office. Uh, they're doing the best they can as well. So we're often playing catch up and uh, we're always looking for little signs from the press office of the Vatican. So now they've released the uh, full itinerary for the Pope's visit to Canada. So we have the itinerary for that papal trip. So we are full steam ahead. I'm going there in a few days to do a preview of it. You know, they were disappointed that the Pope wasn't coming. Of course, they had put so much planning and preparations into this for a country that is unstable politically and in terms of safety. They really had a massive security detail put in place. They had told me a massive logistics and planning to make sure that the Holy Father was safe and everything went according to plan. And everybody who wanted to see him in the country would have an opportunity to come and see him. And so for that to be canceled at the last minute, of course, they were disappointed. It's only natural. So I think uh, Cardinal Pietro Parolin going in his place was a way of the Vatican showing, we are still with you. And even though the Holy Father cannot come, unfortunately, um, the second in command is here with you to hear your concerns, to bring them back to the Pope.
0: Well, let me ask you, it sounds definitely like the, the church is very engaged in helping South Sudan, but is there a strong Catholic population in South Sudan?
1: Not hugely, no. Lots of different types of Christian churches. Actually, uh, the priest that we spoke to, who we spent much of the time with, he was saying as well, you know, a lot of uh, voodoo kind of um, witchcraft as well in the very rural areas that would still be strong. And he said, but they do find that there's more people coming to church now and the people who do come to, to master, to holy mass on a Sunday, very vibrant community, very engaged. I've been to Angola before and to, um, Botswana and South South Africa the young people in the church they're so engaged they you know you don't have to ask them to read they want to go up and read mm-hmm. they want to <laughs> sing in the choir uh, they want to help out well, the, the church Irish, uh, the Irish. Catholic
0: Church is 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 growing in Africa as, as opposed to shrinking in, in so many other places right it belongs yes, like the Catholic that growth belongs in the African in the subcontinent
1: and it's incredible even you know I'm from Ireland and Ireland for such a small nation of only four or five million people we were the nation who sent missionary priests and nuns out across mm-hmm. the world That's right. And in fact, the place we filmed in Rumbeck in South Sudan, there are five Irish in that area, priests and nuns working, which is incredible to think about it in a rural central area of South Sudan in East Africa. But what was uh, beautiful to see is that some of those are heading back now because of their age, their superior generals are calling them back to their headquarters. And it's the locals who are taking over. So they're empowering the locals. Uh, the Holy Ghost Father we spoke to, who's been there for 15 years, he's leaving. And it's a young African priest who's taking over. Oh, that's And wonderful. they're going to be the ones who will be the ambassadors and the role models mm-hmm. to other young people that, you know, what, what kind of job or what kind of profession or what kind of vocation do you have in life? you know, look at me, I'm one of your own. I'm from the village, I'm from the town. I've taken this vocation to the priesthood to be a Catholic priest and maybe you could you could be next. So that's beautiful to see them handing it over to the locals. But also we have them, the African priests are leaving Africa and they're going over now and they're missionaries around the world. We have uh, many of them now in Ireland, how the tables have turned. It's, it's, it,
0: you're, <laughs> I'm never surprised when I go to a parish and I, and I see an African priest and I hear those, those, those what to me are sweet accents of, of the African speaking English. Oh, you know, my, actually my husband and I were married by an African priest here in Miami. This ah. was some time ago we've been married almost 28 years but uh, he was from I think he was from Nigeria a wonderful man 28
1: years in two years you better invite me over for that party yes I've got to be down the guest list and hopefully you'll be Miami. smoking
0: or vaping and looking a lot more cool
1: <laughs> I'll be hooked in the vaping by then oh that's funny
0: so, Colin, maybe since it sounds like you're going to be visiting Canada and covering the Pope's visit, maybe we can have you back on, and you can tell us how how that goes, how that went, and and what the Pope will be doing and, and accomplishing in Canada, the great
1: the great white north. We head to Edmonton in a few days, and uh, possibly Quebec City. We're still finalizing the plans, but yeah, whenever you would like to have me on. I'd be honoured. It's, it's great to be honoured. And thank you so much for taking the time to put up with me, rambling and ranting about... No, it's fabulous. Thank you.
0: Wonderful to have a, a real life uh, view of South Sudan and that. And to remind us all to pray for for all the suffering there and that, that God will avert the, the famine somehow. That something people will come through and food prices will come down. I think about it when people say, oh, I went to the grocery store and the shelves were bare. And I think, well, yeah, so you had to buy some brands that you're not used to, right? Or, uh-huh. or wait to get your cereal next week but you know when we have these inconveniences other people die of starvation in, in other countries yeah. and other and continents that's
1: the incredible thing about doing these trips is it does put things in perspective not just for me and the crew but i think for our audience who watch then on ewtn i mean look everyone has their crosses mm-hmm. to bear Certainly. and everything is relative you know everyone is the center of the universe and what is real to us can be very real and painful mm-hmm. um, and somewhere like South Sudan for most people it can just seem like a world away. You've never been there. You've never been to Africa even. You're just like that. That's a world away, that place. And it doesn't get a lot of coverage on TV anymore. No, never. Um, incredible thing about um, for EWTN and for EWTN News in Depth, you know, because it's not cheap to go to these places and do these reports. It's resource heavy. It's personnel heavy. It's, it's not safe either. Mm-hmm. It's quite risky. Oh, yeah. To, for EWTN going out there. So I, I love that about EWTN. They're saying, well, if we're broadcasting around the world and we've Catholics around the world, albeit a small community in South Sudan, we should go there too.
0: It's a privilege to have you today, Colm, and thank you so much for your reporting and for sharing your time with us. And to our listeners, please make sure to catch Colm Flim on EWTN News In Depth every Friday evening with Monse Alvarado. And also, please consider supporting the very important work of the Sudan Relief Fund by visiting sdnrlf.com. Thank you again, Colin.
1: Gracie, thank you so much.
0: Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie on EWTN Radio. I'm here alongside my dear colleague and co-hostess, Maureen Ferguson. Senator Mike Lee, who represents the great state of Utah, is out with a new book. It's called Saving Nine. Welcome to the show, Senator Lee.
2: Thank you very much. It's good to be with you.
3: Senator Lee is also an author and has written a really important and very timely book on the Supreme Court. It's called Saving Nine. Uh, The subtitle is The Fight Against the Left's Audacious Plan to Pack the Supreme Court and Destroy American Liberty. Senator Lee, we are really looking forward to talking about your book. But first, we've got to hear your perspective on the Dobbs decision, especially since as a young lawyer, you clerked for Justice Alito on the Supreme Court, who is, of course, the author of the Dobbs opinion. And we saw the very moving statement that you made when the opinion was released. You said... While the 63 million lives lost to abortion since Roe can never be reclaimed, we can take heart that the Supreme Court has recognized that Roe v. Wade and its progeny belong next to Plessy v. Ferguson and Dred Scott in the anti-canon of Supreme Court history. So can you share your thoughts with us on this very momentous Supreme Court decision?
2: Yes. I. I you know, I, I've never been more proud to have clerked for Justice Alito than uh, I was on the day when the Dobbs opinion was issued. But that opinion was incredibly well-written. It it was well-written because it recognized not only the moral gravity, but also the constitutional gravity of the injury inflicted by Roe versus Wade. And it also acknowledged that the human cost Associated with it. As you pointed out, 63 million babies have lost their lives since Roe versus Wade was issued. This is a, a day when seven lawyers wearing robes, there were nine justices, of course, as there are today, as there have been since 1869, but only seven of them voted to do this in Roe versus Wade. These seven men in, in black robes decided that they would arrogate to themselves the power to be super lawmakers, to nullify the authority. That would otherwise exist in state legislatures and other legislative bodies around the country uh, to protect unborn human life they had no right to do that they had no authority to do that and 63 million babies have died as a result that is tragic each and every one of those lives is unrepeatable every one of those lives these are people who never get a chance to fall in love Uh, to get an education, to do the things that they would have otherwise done, all because these seven lawyers decided to make themselves judicial oligarchs. And that wrong was reversed with the Dobbs decision. And my hat goes off to Justice Alito and those who joined with him.
0: Senator Lee, your book is called Saving Nine, the fight against the left's audacious plan to pack the Supreme Court and destroy American liberty. And yet, when you describe those original decisions of Roe v. Wade and Casey, it, it sounds like um, the Supreme Court can also be a dangerous tool. What went wrong in those two cases that went right with Dobbs?
2: In Roe and in Casey, the Supreme Court turned itself into a policymaking body. It took debatable matters beyond the scope of debate. It rendered them undebatable. And it did so by misinterpreting the Constitution. It did so essentially by lying about what the Constitution says. The Constitution doesn't address abortion. It doesn't do so directly. It doesn't do so indirectly. So that's what went wrong. And what went right in Dobbs was that they called that out. They acknowledged it for what it is, which was a made up judicial doctrine.
3: Okay, so let's get to your let's get to your book. Um, can you summarize for us the book's
2: thesis? I wrote saving nine because I anticipated what might happen. In the Dobbs case, first thought of it even before the Supreme Court had started, uh, had decided to grant review in this case. But I anticipated that something like Dobbs might come along, and that if and when that happened, the predictable, foreseeable result by the left would be to try to demonize and delegitimize and denigrate the Supreme Court of the United States, and that that would culminate in an effort in an attempt. To undo the Supreme Court of the United States, to remake the Supreme Court in the left's image of itself. And that is exactly what has happened. I mean, look at what they did even before the opinion was issued. When it was just leaked, they started showing up at Supreme Court justices' homes to intimidate them. They started making a trending hashtag, the hashtag expand the court, which is their euphemism for packing the court. So I wrote Saving Nine because it's been. 85 years since anyone has tried to pack the Supreme Court, any serious effort has been made to add to the number of seats on the Supreme Court in order to affect political outcomes. It was very dangerous when they did it before, but this story has been lost to history. And so I wanted to tell that story. I tell the story of, first of all, what the Supreme Court is and what it isn't, the story of how we got to nine, and then an explanation of, of what happened the last time an American president, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, who's kind of the the idol, the hero, the role model of our current president, Joe Biden. The last time he tried to do this in 1937, bad things happened. And I tell the story in, in the book of the fact that even though that effort failed legislatively, it failed legislatively in part because it succeeded in intimidating and bullying and threatening the Supreme Court into doing his bidding. So even when it fails, A court packing threat can inflict very lasting harm. And I explain all this in Saving Nine.
0: Your book addresses a a very important point in time now. People who are paying attention to the left's rhetoric, they keep saying, well, why nine? Why are there nine people on the Supreme Court? Why can't we have more? What's the answer to that?
2: I explain it in great detail in the book. But the shortest summary of that answer is that we have been at nine for 153 years. Nine works well. It's not to say everybody's going to agree on every ruling, but nine has served us well by staying at the same number for 153 years. We've sent a message loud and clear that we want our court to be independent. Sure, the justices are nominated by an elected president, and sure, they're subject to confirmation by an elected Senate. But once they get through that political gauntlet of a process, they are truly independent. You threaten that independence and with it the structure of the Constitution itself. The minute you try to change the court's composition for partisan political purposes to influence the outcome of a particular case or the manner in which particular provision of the Constitution is going to be interpreted. And so that's why we should stick to nine, because we've stuck with it for 153 years. And the cost, the societal cost of allowing it to be expanded to achieve a particular foreordained leftist political outcome is far too high for us should do this. I also explained in Saving Nine that if this happens, if Democrats succeed in adding four justices to the court, as they'd now like to, it will not stop. Republicans have been very consistent for at least a a century, more than a century now, over the the need to not pack the court. But that won't last. If Democrats succeed this time, mark my words, the next time Republicans are in control of the House, the Senate and the White House, they'll pack the court again.
0: Why were the Republicans not getting on the bandwagon to pack
2: The court. We didn't go that route because we understood then, as we understand now, for the reasons I explained in Saving Nine, that the cost of expanding the court in order to achieve a more desired outcome was too high, Mm -hmm. and that that would set us up for a pyrrhic fleeting victory. This would never become settled law. We knew that we were right on the law with regard to Roe versus Wade. We saw that from the outset, even leftist legal scholars were loath to try to defend Roe on its own merits because Roe was to describe it as deeply flawed is a a vast, vast understatement. Roe was severely wrong and we knew it would eventually be overturned, but that if we overturned it through the wrong way, if we overturned it by packing the Supreme Court, that would prove to be a fleeting victory rather than a permanent one.
3: Your book also takes us back to the days that President Biden himself used to call the idea of court packing boneheaded. So, yes. you know, fast forward to the current administration, the Biden administration, where President Biden seems to be all over the place on this question. So where do you think this goes from here? It, it's definitely a major part of the Democrats' playbook in the Senate. So from your perspective in the United States Senate, where do you see this going?
2: Yeah, just just as Joe Biden used to be opposed to Roe versus Wade, Joe Biden also used to be opposed to court packing, calling it a bonehead idea. A whole lot of other liberals have agreed with him, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg as recently as three or four years ago. Just shortly before her death, she said it was a bad idea. And so, all that changed because the far-left radicals within the Democratic Party. The far-left activists who regard abortion not as something that they would describe today as something they want to be safe, legal, and rare. No, it's a sacrament to them now. And so it's it's something of a mandatory rite of passage for a Democratic politician now to say that they support the right to abortion on demand up until the moment of live birth, sometimes even after the moment of live birth, which is terribly, terribly troubling. But Joe Biden has never been one for consistency, and that's no exception here.
0: Some politicians and pundits on the left are calling for court packing. I've read because they're saying that the court is now illegitimate because our new justices, the ones that were put through by, uh, under the president under President Trump's administration, you know, they said that uh, Roe was settled precedent and that they lied. Yeah. I've u- I've heard that word. The justices lied, so now they're illegitimate.
2: Yeah, I, I addressed many of these arguments in Saving nine, and you know, this is really. Disingenuous for them to make these kinds of arguments. First of all, they, they, didn't, they didn't lie. I've, I've yet to be shown a single statement that they made that was incompatible with the truth. The statements that they raise in support of the idea that they somehow lied simply say, yeah, president matters precedent is entitled to respect. They're stating a truth. It's a truism under the doctrine that the Supreme Court uses to deal with precedent, a doctrine called stare decisis. They acknowledge that precedent is entitled to respect, but they also recognize that stare decisis, this idea that you're going to defer to the court's prior decisions, not an inexorable command. It has some limitations to it. Whereas here, you've got a decision like Roe versus Wade that was egregiously wrong from the outset. And whereas here, it doesn't meet up with the criteria that would suggest sticking with precedent even when it's wrong, because of the fact that it has not been a judicially manageable standard. It's not provided a consistent, coherent source of predictability in the law. Uh, There aren't reasonable expectations that have been built up around it, in part because it has itself never been settled law. You don't have to stick to that. These justices never claimed otherwise. I address specifically in the book the other argument they're making in this area, suggesting that... uh, Republicans somehow had been guilty of court packing because we confirmed Republican appointees to the Supreme Court. That is utter nonsense. It, it, there's nothing similar uh, between that and adding to the number of seats on the Supreme Court. Look, I, I cannot state this too strongly. This is why everyone, everyone within the sound of my voice really should read this book. Buy it if you can. If you can't buy it, borrow it from someone. Check it out from the library, but just read it. Everyone needs to read Saving Nine for the simple reason. But this is about much more than the Supreme Court of the United States. This is about saving our Constitution. This is about saving our republic. Our Constitution does not work without an independent federal judiciary. We will not have an independent federal judiciary if they succeed in adding seats to the Supreme Court.
0: Senator, in Miami, this is that resonates very strongly. Everyone... That I talk to every day, most people are from somewhere else, and they've escaped their countries, they've fled their countries, because those countries did not have that separation of powers and that balance between the legislative and the executive and the judicial branches that, that makes our country so, so spectacularly stable and flourishing for so many, so many, so many years. How do we keep in the United States from going down the road of the Latin American Banana Republic?
2: Well, I think we look by their fruits, you shall know them. And when we look at the fruits of countries that erode the independence of their judicial systems, it never ends well. But look, there, there is a reason why the United States has enjoyed this greatest period of peacetime economic prosperity. This is the most successful powerful and economically prosperous nation that human history has ever recorded in the, in the history of the earth. There is a reason for that. And a lot of that has to do with our constitutional system. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we have a court system that despite its flaws, despite its warts, it is itself a, a decent arbiter of the law in most cases. Sure, they've gotten it right plenty of times, but in a lot more cases, they have gotten the right answer. If we tinker with that we will see that this will affect a lot more than judges and lawyers and litigants. Mm -hmm. This affects everyone. This leads to lawlessness of the sort that you're describing in nations whose examples we are loath to emulate.
3: You know, Senator Lee, we're just about out of time, but one more question. You have such a a unique history having clerked for Justice Alito, and we're wondering if you could give us any insights into the terrible atmosphere around the court given the, the leak of the Dobbs decision and the intimidation and protests and even attempted assassination of a supreme court justice but the protests at their homes are particularly outrageous and and i know you've tried to, you know, get our Attorney General Merrick Garland to do more to protect the Supreme Court justices and put an end to these illegal protests at their homes. But w- what more can be done? And where do you see this going?
2: Yeah, great question. First of all, I don't think Merrick Garland has done enough. I'm not sure he's done anything to protect the Supreme Court justices. You've still got people showing up at their homes. You've still got people showing up and chasing them out of restaurants. And I don't see him being prosecuted, even though this is a crime in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1507. So I call upon Merrick Garland, To actually do that, and if he's not willing to do that, he needs to step down. He should resign in shame Mm -hmm. if he's unwilling to do that, because he's putting the republic and the safety of the American people, not just these justices, at grave risk. I am deeply disappointed by the leak and by the failure, the refusal uh, to condemn these things, the refusal of the Biden administration to to enforce the law in this area. The leak itself is troubling. You know, when I was a law clerk at the Supreme Court, one of the first things that I was taught was that we had two separate computer systems. One allowed us to do research on the internet. The other one was totally walled off from the rest of the world. That was the system that we used to edit and circulate draft opinions. We were not allowed to access the internet for that. In fact, it was not physically possible to do it. In the event that we needed to print out a Supreme Court opinion or otherwise handle a hard copy before it was released, we had a Whole set of rules specifically dealing with that. We weren't allowed to take it home to edit. We weren't even supposed to take it to lunch. It shouldn't leave the Supreme Court building. It shouldn't even leave the law clerk's or the justice's office. And when you're finished with it, you couldn't just put it in the trash can. No, you had to put it in what's called the burn bag. And the burn bag had its contents emptied every single day at the end of the day by someone who would come and pick them up, shred them, not just once, but two or three times, so that the entire opinion was turned into confetti. Then, after that they concluded even the confetti was still decipherable enough if somebody really wanted to put up thousands of pieces back together. And so they put them in an incinerator and burned the confetti pieces into a, a really fine powder. Then they mixed that powder with some water, turning it into a sort of a sludge like slurry. And only then could it leave the confines of the Supreme Court. That's how careful they were about this. So the fact this was leaked means that somebody had to violate all kinds of security protocols. They probably violated a number of laws. They certainly violated an untold number of ethical standards applicable to attorneys, to judges, justices, law clerks, and court personnel. So th- this was really a sad day for the court and is going to it's going to take a lot to restore the trust within the Supreme Court that was lost as a result of this betrayal.
0: I feel it was a sad day for the whole country because when we don't have trust in these institutions and the people who work there and and the, and the systems which guide them, the ethical systems which guide them, I think we've lost so much as a people.
2: You're exactly right. The good news here, and there really is good news, even though that was a sad day, it was a bad day for the court and for the country. It led to something good. They were trying to turn into something that would lead to even you know, something even worse. They were trying to use it so as to threaten and intimidate the Supreme Court justices inclined to join on to Justice Alito's opinion. They're trying to make it so that they wouldn't join. Fortunately, they failed. And fortunately, the Alito opinion emerged unscathed, and it emerged as a majority opinion, and it's now the law of the land. As a result, untold number of babies will be saved. We can't bring back the 63 million babies that have been aborted since Roe versus Wade. But we can stop more from being aborted. Because now, at least elected officials have the authority, as they always should have under the Constitution, to enact legislation to protect the unborn.
0: Well, thank God for for that. Thank God for our brave justices who did the right thing, even under so much intimidation. And thank God for all the work that you do, Senator, on the Judiciary Committee and serving the state of Utah. And also for your fabulous book. To all our listeners, make sure you pick up a copy of Saving Nine at your local bookstore or online. And please check out more more of Senator Mike Lee's great policies at lee.senate.gov. Thank you so much, Senator Lee.
2: Thank you so much. Good to be with you. Take care.
0: And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel.
4: This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday as we eavesdrop on the dialogue he has with Saints Martha and Mary in their home in Bethany. We all know that one of the most important things in human life is to learn how to set and keep proper priorities. Often the difference between a happy and unhappy life, between a rewarding and a wasted one, centers on whether we've set the right goals and perseveringly sought to achieve them. It's getting harder today for people to set and achieve these priorities. So many of our technological advances, while offering great possibilities to improve our lives, often just leave us torn apart by a list of to-dos that seems just to keep growing, enslaving us to so many tasks that there seems to be no time for the things that deep down we know are most important. A few years back, there was a poll of American women that revealed that their greatest desire is for more time. There's not enough time in a day, they say, to accomplish all of the things they have to do, from work to taxing their kids from one event to another, to various chores around the home, to countless other time-consuming activities that occupy their ever-diminishing waking hours. Scores of American men have long complained that because of all the demands at work and the fulfillment of other duties, they have less and less time to do the things that are really fulfilling. Even many teenagers and young kids today have to keep a detailed calendar because with lessons, sports, homework, even play dates, their schedule has become overwhelming. To make matters more complicated across the generations, technological advances like cell phones, email, text, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram have created a culture of the nanosecond where those contacting us have gotten so used to an immediate response that we feel we must drop what we're doing and answer right away. Life has become like a -a whack-a-mole game that many of us used to play at arcades where black moles pop up in front of us and we have to whack them down continuously with a mallet. The only difference is that we're a is that what we're about is not a game and that the moles are coming up not just in front of us in five or six predictable holes but all around us all the time To us in this frenetic era, who feel drawn and courted by seemingly having to do so many things well at once, Jesus, with words shocking to our 21st century sensibility, presents us this Sunday a summary of the good news. He who came to set captives free, who is the truth incarnate, who knows everything and cannot lie, tells us in one sentence as he told Martha the secret to our liberation. You are worried and distracted by many things. Only one thing is necessary, he says. In the scene from... This Sunday's Gospel, Jesus helps us to learn what that one thing is, what our true priority needs to be. Martha and Mary welcome Jesus into their home, but they seek to welcome him in two different ways. Martha seeks to please the Lord by doing various things for him. St. Luke doesn't specify what she was doing, but anyone who's hosted a guest knows the types of things that would have characterized her hospitality. Finishing up whatever cleaning might be done, setting up the place to eat, and doubtless preparing a meal. When Martha, however, solicits Jesus' authoritative help in persuading her sister Mary to share in the work, she receives what at first glance seems to be a mild rebuke. To her plea, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Jesus, rather than doing so, says to Martha, 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 you are worried and distracted by many things. There's need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken away from her. What Jesus was not saying here, was that Martha's efforts were somehow unappreciated or evil. Shortly before he entered their home, Jesus, as we heard last week, gave the parable of the Good Samaritan, praising the one who made the effort to care for another, in contrast to the priest and Levite who did nothing. In several other places in the Gospel, he praised service of others. He said that he himself had come as one who serves. He washed his disciples' feet at the Last Supper and told them to do the same. He promised to gird himself with an apron and wait on those at the heavenly banquet. He said that the greatest among us would be the one who serves the rest. Jesus was clearly not castigating Martha for her hard-working service, done out of love for him. What he was saying, however, was that none of those efforts was, strictly speaking, essential. That there was no reason to get worked out about them. And that there was something more important to focus on. Something that Mary realized and Martha as yet hadn't. Here's what Mary recognized. Jesus had come to their home primarily not to be fed, but to feed. The welcome he sought most was their time, their friendship, their love, their open ears and open hearts. Mary understood this and sat at Jesus' feet listening to him as if nothing in the rest of the world really mattered. Because, in fact, Jesus implies nothing in the rest of the world really does matter anywhere near as much as that. In these interactions in Bethany with Martha and Mary, Jesus was indicating to them, to the apostles, and to us the one thing necessary, so that we too might identify the better part, choose it, and then set our minds and hearts on acting in accordance with it. So let's get practical and make his conversation with Martha and Mary consequential in our life. The first thing we need to consider is the hospitality we give to Jesus. Like the sisters in Bethany, each of us is called to welcome Christ into our homes, both our physical homes and the spiritual abode of our hearts and souls. Do we welcome Jesus and sit at his feet in prayer? Or are we, like Martha, too caught up, too anxious and too distracted by less important things that we're welcoming to our minds and souls each day, such that we no longer have the energy or space to invite Christ in? That leads us to the second point. We're called to imitate Mary in choosing the better part and allowing Jesus to feed us as he desires to do. It's not enough for us to know what our priority should be. We also have to choose that priority. It's not enough not just to know where the treasure is buried. We need to make the choice to sell off other things that own us so that we can buy that field. That means reorienting our life to make Jesus truly its center. One of the most common problems facing even many faithful Catholics today in preventing their spiritual growth is that they put many things ahead of God on Sunday, on Monday, and throughout the week. We know God exists. We believe in what we profess in the Creed. But rather than treating our relationship with him as the one thing necessary, we allow him to slip down the ladder of our priorities, such that we no longer make time for him in prayer or even at Sunday Mass. Four weeks ago, the Church in the United States began a three-year Eucharistic revival, which is a grace-filled time for us to get our priorities straight by making practical what we believe about Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. If we really believe that the Eucharist is Jesus, and if we truly love Jesus, we will want to come to spend time sitting in His feet in prayerful adoration and even more wondrously to receive him at mass the third and final application is to Martha the last thing Jesus would want would be for all of us merely to sit at his feet and allow everyone else to work to serve us that's certainly not the Christian way or the way Jesus adopted like Martha we're called to work hard serving others we're supposed to do it with the spirit of Mary that's what the sanctification of our work is all about to Martha's hands and Mary's contemplative heart So that we won't be distracted by many other things, but so focused on Jesus in our work, at school, in family life, and beyond, that we'll be getting fed by him in action, and become his instruments to feed others not just by our work, but with the one working within us. That's the vocation of every Christian, and one of the most important forms of service we can give to others to help them to form true priorities that will bring them to happiness Holiness in heaven. Jesus wants to send us as missionaries to show others by our witness and words how to choose the better part, how happily to make God the true priority of life in the midst of so many modern distractions and anxieties that leave people without a sure compass and spitting out of control. Each of us is called to work as hard as Martha out of love for God and others in setting an eloquent, attractive compelling example like Mary, the example of a life with Jesus at its center. When we go to Mass on the Lord's Day in the modern Bethany of our parish church, we'll have the privilege like Mary to listen at Jesus' feet while he feeds us with his word and to nourish us even more profoundly with his flesh and blood. We ask him through this nutrition to give us the courage to reorder our priorities, to base our lives on what he indicates in his conversation with these two sisters. Jesus is the one thing necessary. Mary chose the better part After Jesus' gentle correction, St. Martha, we believe, ultimately did too. Now let us ask them to intercede for us before Jesus' feet in heaven for the grace to make the same choice today, tomorrow, and each day going forward, and to help us to become apostles sent out to help others order their life to the one thing necessary to choose that one thing necessary and to come with Martha and Mary to the heavenly banquet. God bless you all.
0: Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace
4: and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers.